if you would open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17 will be in verses 1 through 19 tonight. Have you ever thought about how amazing it is that the one who rules over all, the one who sits on the highest throne, that he speaks to us lowly ones. And we get to hear this week after week. We get to hear it even every time we open up the word that he speaks to us. It's an amazing thing. and Unfortunately, it's kind of like seeing a, 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 the, let's say the Grand Canyon or something, something that's amazing and you see it over and over and over and you think it's not that big of a deal when it is. What's amazing about God's word is that he delights to speak to us over and over and over again. Luke 17, 1 through 19. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. The Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he comes in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say... We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, and he entered a village, and as he did, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance, and they lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them who had seen that he was healed, he turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And then Jesus said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that you speak to us and that 
you set the agenda for what we are to hear from you. And thank you for giving us in this room, me included, thank you for giving us this text from you tonight so that we might know who you are. Help us to be amazed at the gospel of grace. Help us to live in light of the gospel of grace. But only you can do that work in us. But we know you do that work in us as you speak to us. So help us to hear. Help us to search our hearts. Help us to know what all we have in Jesus Christ. We ask all this in his name. Amen. If there was one message that everyone had to listen to, you had to make them put headphones on, you had to make them listen to something, what message would you choose for it to be? When Robert Downey Jr. was struggling with substance abuse, it was Mel Gibson who had poured into him in that season of his life. It was Gibson who even helped Downey land a role in a movie and helped him continue to work. Robert Downey Jr. said, I couldn't get hired and he was the one who cast me. He said, if I accepted responsibility, he called it hugging the cactus. If I accepted responsibility long enough, my life would take meaning. And if he helped me, I would need to help the next guy. Now, little did Mel Gibson know in that time when he was helping out Robert Downey Jr., little did he know that he would be the next guy who Robert Downey Jr. would have to help out. Gibson had gotten himself in the doghouse with Hollywood because of his angry outbursts, his anti-Semitic comments, his racial slurs, and even drunk driving arrests. But it was in 2011 when Robert Downey Jr. was at an award show that Mel Gibson was the presenter of an award for Robert Downey Jr. And it was during that speech that Robert Downey Jr. asked Hollywood to show the same mercy towards Gibson that they had shown towards him years earlier. Here's the question. Has God's forgiveness, has it gripped you to the point where you are eager to forgive others? Has God's forgiveness gripped you to the point where you are eager to forgive others? It's the most relevant, but yet also the most Countercultural message we could hear today. And if something, as I was thinking about that, if there would be one text for people to hear today and everything we have going on, maybe this would be the text. Because this text is all about how radical God's forgiveness is. And when we are gripped by that, we will be a forgiving people. It's interesting that when Jesus is going to be telling this parable and, ta- and, and you see these instances here, it's actually on the heels of what has happened in 1516 and what Jesus has done. You remember the parable of the prodigal son we looked at earlier this semester. You see also chapter 16, the parable of the dishonest manager. And even later in chapter 16, you see the parable of rich man and Lazarus that we covered a couple of weeks ago. What Jesus has been doing leading up to chapter 17, here's what he's been doing. He's been showing how the Pharisees and the, the teachers or pastors of the day how they were dishonest with pastoring God's people. And actually, instead of showing them the gracious God who has always been loving towards his people, he has always kept covenant with his people. They were not showing that God, but they were showing a God that you could earn by your works. 
So that's why Jesus is going to give this warning and then this short parable. He's trying to continue to show them the graciousness of God's grace. So the question I want to ask you tonight and I want to keep coming back to is this. Are you gripped by God's forgiveness for you? Look back at verse 1. If you're going to be gripped by God's forgiveness for you, you need to feel the weight of God's law of forgiveness. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin, or maybe you have a footnote there, or maybe you're reading the NIV, that's a really good translation. It's really stumbling blocks are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves, or maybe even more so, beware of yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day, and he turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. We see here Jesus' law of forgiveness. And we need to feel the weight of this law of forgiveness. What does Jesus mean in verse 1 when he's talking about stumbling blocks or in the ESV when it says temptations to sin? What he means here is the false teaching of the Pharisees. The teaching that would distort the gospel of grace and turn it into a system of works. He's saying inevitably, people in in every age, in every culture, they will twist the gospel and change it from being about grace to being about works. They'll change it from being about Jesus to it being about you. But Jesus is saying... Even even though those are sure to come, woe to the one through whom they come. In other words, we are in sin if we reject the gospel of grace or if we twist or alter or add to the gospel of grace. Paul makes it very clear in Galatians 1.9, he gives a very stern warning, if not a pronouncement of a curse he says this as we have said before so now i say it again if anyone if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received let him be accursed why is it so bad to change the gospel of grace into a system of works well because jesus says in john 14 verse 6 i am the way not a way He's the way. He is the truth, not a truth. Not There's Eric's truth, then there's Wilson's truth. There's Matthias' truth, then there's Wilson's truth, or whoever else I want to name, but those are two of my seniors. There we go. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. So if you mess up Jesus' message, then no one gets to the Father, no one gets salvation. That is a messed up thing to do. That's what the Pharisees were doing. Interestingly, when they were trying to make people good citizens in society, they were making them more evil in their hearts. How demonic it is to twist the gospel, to subtly add to the gospel or subtly de-emphasize things in the gospel. Jesus says here would be this actually a better situation And this sounds really harsh. He says, 
If this giant millstone were hung around someone's neck and they were plummeted into the depths of the sea, that sounds horrible. It sounds like a nightmare. Matter of fact, Romans in that time, in that time, they would sometimes execute people guilty of some very, very heinous crimes by drowning them that way. Even Jewish people, they would normally regard this type of punishment as too inhumane. And Jesus is saying, you would rather have that happen than if you change the gospel. That's a pretty intense thing to say. If you dare to water down or distort the gospel of grace, then we can expect that the waters of God's wrath will crash over us. It does, on the positive end, it makes us see this. Do you not see how eager God is for you to hear of the gospel of grace? He's so eager for you to hear it that he gives severe warnings to anyone who would distort it. He's saying, Jesus is saying here that our teaching of this gospel better be so clear that even the little ones will not sin. Look, I've taught elementary school people and middle school people and high school people before. And let me tell you something. Um, they always find a way to twist your words. Like, even if you are, like, as clear as can be, there's always going to be someone who's like, did you say this? It's like, no, I definitely did not say that. In other words, Jesus has given us such a law that we realize there's no way we can fulfill it. I love what John Payne says. He's a PCA pastor in South Carolina. He says this. If the gospel isn't neglected altogether, it's described as that which we are or that which we do rather than what Christ has done. The gospel is the heralding of Christ's good works, not ours. We are never the gospel. Our good works are never the gospel. Christ is the gospel. And with the apostles, we bear witness to him. To be sure, there are many implications of the gospel for the church and the world. Nevertheless, we must never confuse the fruit of the gospel from the gospel itself. There are many ways in which we respond to the gospel, but that is not the gospel. The gospel is the definitive news of what Jesus Christ has done, period. We do not make it true. It is true. We just respond to it. We need to feel the weight of God's law of forgiveness. Jesus is showing it by warning us of false teaching. He's also helping us feel the weight of this by telling us to confront sin rightly. You see that in verse 3, pay attention to yourselves or beware of yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. There was Jewish custom in that time that to rebuke someone, to reprove someone for their sins, you would first do so privately before you would bring them before an assembly. Well, that's the process of Matthew 18, where Jesus says, first go to someone one-to-one and then bring two or three people with you and then pronounce it publicly. But contrary to that, what the Pharisees love to do is they love to only talk about people and not talk to people. 
Jesus is saying that we, we, we do confront people when we see them in sin. We confront them lovingly, compassionately, patiently, wisely. But we don't sit there and just talk about people publicly, but rather we talk to them privately first. Let us think about this in RUF. We often show how perverse our hearts are when we more eagerly throw shade at someone publicly rather than to confront them privately. To gossip about someone before you go to someone is sin. Jesus is telling us to don't, do not go about it the Pharisees' way, but go about it the gospel way. But not only do we rebuke and approach people that way, but we also forgive. Here's his law of forgiveness. He says in verse 4, and if he sins against you seven times in the day. Remember the word, the number for seven represents completeness. In other words, this was a completely awful day for this person against you. It was as bad as it gets. That's what Jesus is saying. In a single day, he's like heightening it as much as you can heighten it. Seven times in the day, and yet seven times in the day when this person comes back to you again and again and again and again saying, have mercy on me. Jesus is saying, you must forgive that person. It's a, it's a steep mountain to climb. What does it mean when Jesus says, repent? To repent means to have a change of heart and a change of mind. Every Christian is called to repentance. We have a change of mind, a change of heart, a change in the way we think and and we're beginning to change the way we act to repent is to have regret over past behaviors and to seek to live differently although it will never be a perfectly changed life it's almost like this it's almost like a compass that is broken that can't point north and then someone tweaks it and fixes it and now the compass can point north but even when you have a compass that points north you might not you might not always be facing north But nevertheless, your compass is always going to pull you north. It will correct the way in which you're going, and it might happen over time. I love what our Westminster Confession says about repentance. To summarize it for you, what is it? Repentance means to see and feel how evil your sin is in the sight of God. But it also means this. It also means to believe in the abundant mercy in Jesus Christ. It is not sitting there saying, I feel bad, and I feel really good about feeling really bad for a really long time. That's just self-righteousness and pride. But rather, it is, it is seeing how evil your sin is, and it is running to the grace that is in Jesus Christ. It's having a hatred for sin. It is grieving over your sin. But it is also turning to the very same God who is infinite in grace to everyone who comes to Jesus Christ. That's what repentance is. Now, what does it mean when someone repents towards us? Jesus is saying you must forgive them. We don't, we don't like that very much. Here's what we often do. We often say, well, I haven't seen them totally change yet. My friends, yes, Christians strive for change, but change takes time and it's never perfect. You might say, 
Well, they need to go back and fix those things first. Yes, to be sure we reconcile with others when it's possible. But you're never going to be able to atone for your sins from the past. You can't do it. Only Jesus can. You might say, well, I'm not going to forgive someone until I see that they're sorry enough first. Yes, to be sure, there needs to be true biblical conviction. And yes, people can fake it. And yes, people can only feel condemnation and never actually run to Jesus. But you have to remember that the Christian life is not about staying morbid all the time. You might say, well, I need to see what all they do first and then I'll forgive them. Yes, repentance obviously does something. But first of all, before doing something, it is about believing something. And you cannot always see what they're wrestling with inside their conscience. The last one that we might do is this. We might say, I need to know how bad they hurt. I need them to know how bad they hurt me before I forgive them. Once again, yes, there needs to be biblical conviction. But let me ask you this. Let me ask me this. But at what point is our constant shaming them and guilt tripping them? At what point is that just turning into us putting them in our own personal purgatory? No, don't rob them of the godly grief that they need to experience. But also don't treat them as if they're still living underneath the law, but help them to see that Jesus Christ has freed them from the law. My friends, if someone repents... Forgive them. The question that we have here is just like what happened with the parable of the prodigal son. The father did not sit back and look at that son and say, now let's see if you go on a long enough streak. Let's see if you're sorry enough. Let's see if you go back and fix your past. Or let's just make sure you don't ever do that again. He didn't do that. He took him at that moment and he says, I forgive you. Jesus is telling all of us in here. That even if someone has the worst possible sinful day against us, and yet every time they still come up to us and say, have mercy on me, we're bound to forgive them. The summary of our actions towards people like this would be one of forgiveness. We need to think about this word to forgive. Too often we forget how amazing these words are. To forgive means to to leave something or to abandon a person or a place. It's the same word at times that has been used for to divorce. It means to legally separate from and to not get back together. It means to forgive means to let go of an offense. It means to cancel. Interestingly, in our culture that loves to talk about love, we're the most unforgiving culture that maybe there's been in a long time. We've even promoted this whole thing called cancel culture where we do all we can to eradicate someone's social influence. We divorce them from us and we say, we're done with you. But in forgiveness, this is what we do. In forgiveness, we do that to the sin, but not the person. We cast the sin away from us and we say, I'm not going to remember it anymore. But you, I embrace. Forgiveness is the restoration of a relationship. It means to let sin be dead to that relationship. It means to let it be a forgotten 
memory. It's the opposite of holding bitterness to constantly be bringing something back to mind, to be treating someone like they are still guilty, to be keeping that memory in someone's account. My friends, how often we forget this, these two scripture verses, the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. One of the Beatitudes, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. My friends, if you have a hard time forgiving people, that means you have a hard time believing you are actually forgiven. Obviously, this is not easy. So the disciples say, Lord, increase our faith. And hopefully we would all see this because no doubt all of us are struggling to forgive certain people in our lives. We know that this is an impossible law to fulfill. We feel the weight of it. And Jesus responds to their request of increase our faith. And he says, look, even if you just had the smallest amount of faith, the size of a mustard seed, but if it was the right kind of faith, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Why a mulberry tree? A mulberry tree was typically one that had a very wide root system and it was apparently ridiculously hard to uproot. What's Jesus saying here? He's saying this. When we are gripped by God's forgiveness of us, we will freely extend it to others. But if we are reluctant to forgive other people, it shows that we do not understand his forgiveness for us because we sin against him seven times a day. And we ask for mercy seven times a day. My friends, are you gripped by God's forgiveness for you. We need to feel the weight of God's law of forgiveness. We also need to see the reason for God's logic of forgiveness. Look at verse 7. Here's this parable. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and, and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. What Jesus is doing here, these might seem disconnected sections, but what Jesus is doing, remember in that first section, he's trying to show them, here's the law of forgiveness, and he's basically crushing them with the law. And now he's going to prove to you why There can only be forgiveness, and you can't look at God and say, you better give me what I deserve. You see, we need to see the reason for God that he does not have to repay us. If you think God owes you, you're making a God in your own image. God does not have to repay us, but rather he can sit there and demand of us, because all we would do is just do our duty. You see, think about it this way. This parable is almost like this. Let's say you hire a real estate agent and you're going to go move into a certain house. And once they show you these houses and you pick that house after you had hired them to do their job of showing you all these different houses. When you start moving in, they show up and they start moving in too. And you say, what are you doing? And the real estate agent will say, well, I'm moving in because I helped you find the house. Yeah, that'd be crazy. Because all they did was their duty. They don't somehow 
You don't owe them to say, oh, well, now you have a house too. All they did was their duty. When Jesus says in his parable, talking about this servant who all he would do is just fulfill the master's uh, obligations. When he would fulfill those, this word for in verse 9 where it says, does he thank the servant uh, because he did what was commanded? That word for thank means this. It would be as if it's not just that the, the, the master would be saying, oh, thank you. It'd be as if the master would say, well, now I'm going to serve you because you went above and beyond your duty. Jesus is saying, that's not the way it goes. The servant has merely fulfilled his duty. I love what Brian Chapel says in his book, Holiness by Grace. He says, our efforts before God will never earn us entry into his kingdom or obligate him to love us. What would you do if you finally realized that there was nothing you could do to earn God's love? That all you could do to receive God's love would be to receive Jesus Christ. Or let me ask you this way. What would you stop trying to do if you finally realized that you cannot earn God's love, but you just receive Jesus Christ? See, that's often why we boast in our own deeds and our own works, because we think we can earn God's love. We think that once we obey him, that now he, he owes us something. My friends, let me get you to do this. Breathe in. Breathe out. Where did you get that breath? Where did you get your heartbeat that's beating right now? The thought, even the ability to think about your breath and your heartbeat. How about the gravity that's holding you down in your seat or the immune system that is fighting off thousands of diseases or the relationships that you have in any capacity or the tongues to taste or even the ears to hear my very voice right now. My friends, where did you get any of that? You got it from God. And to look at him and say, give me what I deserve is crazy. It's often why we compare ourselves with other people because we're just trying to boast in our own works. And when we compare ourselves in light of this, knowing that everything we are is received from God, comparing yourself to other people is the most ridiculous thing in the world if you actually understand it. It's like two people on death row who are having an argument about which one of them is the more moral person. They're both going to die. I love what Luther said. It will be exceedingly difficult to get into another habit of thinking in which we clearly separate faith and works. Even though we are now in faith, the heart is already, I mean, excuse me, the heart is always ready to boast of itself before God. With men you may boast, but when you come before God, let all boasting stay at home and remember to appeal to his grace. If you are looking to God and saying, like the Pharisee we looked at a couple weeks ago, saying, look at me, you have no idea who he is. We also seek to earn his blessing by our merit. But see, we often forget how holy God is and how sinful we are. You need to think about this, what Isaiah says in Isaiah 64, verse 6 
We have all become like one who is unclean, unfit to be in the presence of God. And listen to this. And all, ooh, there we go. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Your best deeds are like a polluted garment. You know, there's a saying going around right now where, you know, the video game people were like, what does it say? I wrote it down. You're trash, you're dog water. My dad's a veterinarian in Montgomery, Alabama, and I used to work at his office, and I know what lukewarm or even just hot summer day dog water looks like and smells like, and it's disgusting. That's your best deeds. I've also thought when I was in New Orleans, and when you go downtown in New Orleans, you would often see liquid flowing in the gutters and no telling what all is in there. And I remember... Me and some of my friends used to joke about how much would you have to be paid to drink just a small glass of that liquid. My friends, that liquid in downtown New Orleans is more pure than your best deeds before God. Every devotion, every evangelistic faithfulness, every time you forgive someone for their sins, every time you restore to someone what you took from them every time you are persecuted for believing God's word every time you give away your money to the poor every time you come to Sunday Sunday worship to worship God none of those things earns you God's blessing you've only done your duty and yet in every single one of those things they're all tainted with sin Jesus is letting you know you can't earn it it's interesting because this actually reminds us that worship, yet again, is not consumeristic. Please know that so many churches today, even in the reform circles, can treat people who come to church as consumers and they want to put forward the best product. And unless you're excited all the time, then they know you will walk away. But that's not worship. That's actually, well, I will say this, it is worship. It's worship of you and me. But what is biblical worship? Biblical worship is for beggars. Who come empty-handed. And you look to God and say, we have nothing to offer you. And it is a privilege to be here. And we are just here to receive from you. That's why we're here. You can't give God anything that he doesn't have already. Romans 11.35 says, Or who has given a gift to him that he might somehow be repaid? Sometimes we even live this way. We say, God, why did you not let me get a good grade on that test? I've been going to church. I've been nice to others. I've, I've spent so much time studying. But I even made time for my devotions all week this week. And I'm going to RUF. My friends, God does not work that way. You cannot. There we go. You cannot earn his love. You cannot earn his blessing. If you did all those things, you'd merely be doing your duty. I love what Jerry Bridges says. My observation of Christianity today is that most of us tend to base our relationship with God on our performance instead of on his grace. If we've performed well, whatever well is in our opinion, then we expect God to bless us. If we haven't done so well, our expectations are reduced accordingly. In this sense, we live by works rather than by grace. 
We're saved by grace, but we are living by the sweat of our own performance. Moreover, we are always challenging ourselves and one another to try harder. We seem to believe success in the Christian life, however we define success, that it's basically up to us. Our commitment, our discipline, and our zeal with some help from God along the way. We give lip service to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. But really, our unspoken motto is this, is that God helps those who help themselves. What does that result in? When we're trying to constantly earn God's love, it often results in us going through seasons of anxiety, depression, shame, the blame game, self-righteous scorekeeping, or y'all know my favorite German word, Anfechtungen. That severe spiritual trial or that suffering in your conscience where you know that you're not enough. You see, you need to realize this is that this isn't merely just a sickness that you have to deal with. Like, man, this isn't working out so well. Let's try something else. This is sin. Trying to earn God's love is sin. You were never meant to repent of humbly coming to God, begging him for mercy. You were never meant to repent of that. You were meant to repent of trying to earn it. That's what Jesus is telling us. You see, doing our duty before God is not like getting the Medal of Honor where it says that you recipients of this are ones who go above and beyond the call of duty. You feel the weight, right? You can't earn it. But you know what's amazing about that? Is that if you can't earn it, once you get it, you can't lose it. You can't increase it. It's either infinite or not. And if it can't increase, it can't decrease. If you can't demand it from God, then you can't outrun it. And when you understand how gracious and how constant and how merciful God's forgiveness is towards you, a sinner, the sinner, how trigger happy you will be to forgive others. My friends, are you gripped by God's forgiveness? Thirdly, we need to respond with joy to God's lavish forgiveness. You see this instance in 11 verse 19 of these 10 lepers, not leopards, uh, lepers. It's a good little dad joke for whenever you eventually read your little kiddos. 10 lepers, they come to Jesus, they stand at a distance, they lift up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. You see, it's one thing to be a leper, and lepers were treated very similar to the way Jews would treat Samaritans. They were the unclean. They were the castaways. So if you were a leper and you were a Samaritan, that's double trouble. If you were a leper in that day, when you would walk into a village, here's what you would have to do. Forgive me if I'm being loud. I'm always loud. They would walk in and they would say, unclean, unclean. May everyone know that we are unclean. So that whenever people would hear that, they would part the way and want to, they would not want to do anything they could with them because no one could be near them. How do you think that was on their self-esteem? 
They would have never known the embrace from their family or their friends during that time. It would have been like solitary confinement for them. It was the equivalent of cancel culture for them back then. It barred them from the temple. They would have been seen as objects of God's wrath. Everything about them would have seemed like they do not deserve God's mercy. But yet they come to Jesus knowing their uncleanness, knowing their brokenness. And they say, have mercy. My friend, some of you have been telling yourself over and over how unclean you are. Some of you say that silently to yourself every single day because your conscience is eating you up because of the things you've looked at on your phone. Your conscience is eating you up because of the shows you're watching on TV. Your conscience is eating you up because of cheating on those tests or hooking up with that person or having those desires, and you repeat to yourself every day, unclean, unclean. And my friends, it is true. We are unclean. But God loves a broken heart. Psalm 51 verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. My friends, God will not be persuaded by you defending yourself, but he will be propitious towards you when you declare yourself unworthy of his mercy. God does not wait for you to feel sorry enough and then he forgives you, but rather he just wants you to confess. He wants you to own up to the fact that you are actually a monster and you are ridiculously evil. I love what one person says, that what is forgiveness? Forgiveness is giving up all hope of having had a better past. That's what we do. It's interesting because Jesus declares to them, go and show yourselves to the priests, and as they go, they are cleansed. My friend, what I want you to see is this. Do you see the power of God's word? Does Jesus touch them? No. Does he rub his hands together and throw powder in the air like LeBron James before a game showing you that magic is about to happen? No, he merely speaks and it happens. Do you know what's amazing? Is that when you hear the word of God proclaimed, that is true for you when you come to Jesus Christ. You do not make it true. It is true. In Jesus Christ, when you come on Sundays and when you confess your sin and you hear another sinful preacher who has been ordained by God to proclaim the assurance of pardon, that is a true word for you. What's amazing is that what Jesus is saying here is this. You could never earn my love, but I give it to you. You can never earn my forgiveness, but I declare it to you. And it is real. And the things that you think in your heart right now, well, I'm not sure if he can forgive me for this. He says, that's the very thing I forgive you for. In Christ, there is mercy for you. I love one of my good friends, Zach Bird. He sent me a text one time. He said, I had an impromptu counseling session with a woman who was feeling guilty over her father dying. 
And what was my primary pastoral tool in that moment? Assurance of pardon. She texted me a few hours later about how meaningful that was for her soul. And it was one of those pastoral wins. And here's what he said. All I said was that words do something. When God says you are forgiven, that word does something, my friends. You are really forgiven because of Jesus Christ. Amen? You do not earn it. You can't fight it off. You can't run away from it. You can't water it down. There is more grace in Jesus Christ than there is sin in you. And I don't care what you bring to him. Anybody who comes to Jesus Christ has mercy and forgiveness. Is that not amazing? It makes this one Samaritan leper respond with joy. He runs back. He falls at Jesus' feet. He's praising God, no doubt, realizing that Jesus is more than just some man. He's not saying, well, Jesus, I can't forgive myself. He is trusting that Jesus' word is more authoritative than his own thoughts. And it is in that moment of radical forgiveness that Jesus is reminding his disciples when you are gripped by how amazing God's forgiveness is for you, you will forgive other people. Is God's forgiveness gripping you? Vivian Malone, a young black woman who enrolled as a student at the University of Alabama in 1963, federal troops helped ensure her entrance into the school, but Governor George Wallace tried to block her way in when he failed, Vivian Malone became the first African-American student ever to graduate from the University of Alabama. Years later, Governor Wallace was taken in his wheelchair to Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery. There you go. Where he asked black people there to forgive him for his racism, bigotry, and specifically his ill treatment of Vivian Malone. He asked Malone herself for forgiveness. Here's what Malone said to her. She said that she had already forgiven the governor years before. And when asked why she had done that, here's what she said. I'm a Christian. And I grew up in the church. I was taught that we are all equal in the eyes of God. I was taught that you forgive people no matter what. And that was why I had to do it. I didn't feel as if I had a choice, my friends. Here was one person who was gripped by the forgiveness of God for her. And she forgave the most despicable man in her life. What do you think God's forgiveness might do on this campus? Let me pray. Father, we know we need your forgiveness. And you call us to forgive others, but Lord, we... We doubt that we are forgiven by you. So, Father, I'm asking that anyone in this room that they would just simply acknowledge that, that they are indeed a sinner. That they would admit that they cannot do the least thing to satisfy that debt that they owe you. Father, that they would plead with you for your free grace and that you would forgive them. And that you would show them that your favor and your mercy is upon them in Jesus Christ. And that you indeed will forgive them of all of their sins every day of their life.
And Father, I pray that as they know the forgiveness of sins, that you would give them a peace and a joy that surpasses all understanding. And help them to know, as Paul says in Romans 10, 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Help us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.